The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, visit canada.ca slash coronavirus. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Staying on message, as House Democrats wrap up their case for convicting the U.S. president, one congressman shoots back at the Republican senators who insist they haven't learned anything new. A parasite to behold. Doctors thought she had a tumor in her liver, but what an Alberta woman learned about what was really growing inside her is enough to make anyone squirm. Kept in the dark, the head of Canada's Transportation Safety Board says Iran is mostly cooperating with her team's investigation into the downed Ukrainian airliner, but it's high time to hand over the black boxes. A storied career. The late Jim Lehrer spent many of his 50 years as a journalist opposite his PBS co-anchor, Canadian Robert McNeil, who tells us they spent those same 50 years as very close friends. Talk like an Egyptian. The voice of a 3,000-year-old mummy comes to life as scientists use a 3D printer to produce an electronic version of the ancient priest's larynx. And rock by baby on the laptop. He doesn't know it yet, but baby Ryan is already an internet star, thanks to his dad, who spent a year splicing his babbling and cooing to the tune of the hard rock anthem, Thunderstruck. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that figures now he knows his ACDCs. On the Senate floor this week, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff pleaded for his colleagues' patience and their full attention. At times, he got neither. Mr. Schiff, along with several other House Democrats, had 24 hours total to convince the Senate to convict U.S. President Donald Trump and remove him from office. They poured over the evidence, showed the senators' video clips, and invoked the Founding Fathers. Meanwhile, Republican senators could be seen with crossword puzzles, novels, and fidget spinners. Some even napped. Today marks the last day the Democrats can argue their case that President Trump abused power and obstructed Congress. Starting tomorrow, President Trump's defense team will take the floor. Jamie Raskin is a Democratic congressman. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Congressman Raskin, this week, do you think your Democratic colleagues convinced any Republican senators to convict the president, realistically? I don't think anybody was necessarily moved to that point in the Senate, I think uh, if you had a jury of 100 impartial American jurors, the vast majority would have been moved. The evidence is overwhelming. It's uncontradicted. It's unrefuted. The president has no alibi. It's not a case of mistaken identity. There's basically no defense, which is why they keep changing the subject to talk about how rude someone was or the speaker was passing out pens when she signed the impeachment thing. I mean, you know, there's every distraction in the book, but there is no effort by the Republicans to actually confront 
the reality of the president's misconduct. For one thing, you have to have two-thirds in the Senate in order to actually remove the president from your impeachment. But in order to get more witnesses and to get more evidence introduced, you don't need that many senators to come on side with the Democrats. Do you think you convinced senators even to go that far? Well, I think a number of senators have been moved a lot closer to voting for the production of documents and witnesses. You know, the the real X factor here is public opinion. I mean, what's going to move them is political heat from their home states. And do you think Um, they're getting that? Well, I think they are getting it. One kind of telling glimpse into the situation has been Susan Collins, who's been very jumpy and twitchy during this whole process. Um, She's clearly feeling the heat. She also said Senator Schumer, who's the head of the Democrats in the Senate, of course, is going to put the heat on me, but he's also going to try to beat me at the polls. And so what we got there was a glimpse into her worldview, which is, well, even if she does the right thing and treats the trial like a trial, the Democrats are still going to be running against her. So she may as well double down with Donald Trump and the Republicans. And I think that really is the best window onto the politics of the situation. Most of these Republicans feel like there's not much in it for them to move to a nonpartisan position about it. They've got to stick with the Republican base. But if they did vote to call more witnesses in the Senate, as some Republicans, as you're pointing out, are, are perhaps might do that, or enough of them to do that, they're also possibly going to insist that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, are, they are relevant witnesses and they should be called. So what would that do for the case if those two men are brought into the Senate? Well, you know, the position of the House majority and the impeachment managers, of course, is that there should be relevant witnesses. And so if they're relevant, then by all means. But of course, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden don't know anything about Donald Trump's shakedown scheme and how it was executed and how they held up the money with the Office of Management and Budget. And they're just not relevant witnesses. That makes it into uh, a real partisan circus. You saw the senators appearing distracted. They're playing little finger games and and reading novels and doing crosswords and whatever. Even those who said that the Democrats laid out a good case mentioned that they laid it out over and over and over again, that uh, one hour or one session could have done it, and that everyone repeated the same thing. Is it reasonable to say that it became a kind of Democratic echo chamber? First of all, you're right that we are a country with attention deficit disorder. On the other hand, there are people who are sitting in jury boxes all across the country every day who are not permitted to be on their phones and not permitted to play their games, and they just have to pay attention, and they're not paid remotely as much as the U.S. senators are. So I understand that the impeachment managers have repeated a number of themes. Maybe it's you know been a, a bit overboard. On the other hand, if they had said, mercifully, you've given us three days, we're just going to use one day, then the Republicans would be running around saying, oh, you see, they don't even have enough to say. There's so little evidence. Go back to the House. Wait, when you say that the senators have attention deficit disorder, the question is, is what about the general public? And I just want to play a few clips that appeared just today. This is out of New Hampshire. Just hear these, these two undecided voters. I particularly think it's a waste of time for the government, and I think that we should be focusing on the next election and doing what's best for our 
country rather than impeaching the current president. It's a waste of time, really. I believe that the Democratic Party is really focused on this instead of focusing on the issues. And they should beat Trump by voting on the issues, not this uh, kind of farce of a distraction. Okay, that's from undecided voters. You're probably hearing that yourself from your own constituents. What do you make of that? Well, that's definitely not what I'm hearing from my constituents. What's interesting, though, is if you look at the the polling of independents, independents overwhelmingly support impeachment, conviction, and removal of the president. So it's Democrats and independents, um, and even a growing number of Republicans, although it remains small. Most Republicans, you know, basically have fulfilled Donald Trump's prophecy that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he would maintain his support in the party. But if you want people to understand the case for uh, that Mr. Trump abused power and obstructed justice, which is which are the charges, and you have a compelling case, but you have to follow it closely to understand it. And is is that a problem? I mean, for if if senators are having a hard time following this, is it possible that a lot of people will just find it noise that uh, that actually might even come to help Mr. Trump? The real question is whether people care enough about the Constitution and care enough about what the presidency is going to be like in the future. If the Republicans actually let him get away with this behavior, which the president describes as absolutely perfect and he's completely unrepentant about it, then it will allow uh, Trump to continue to do that in the 2020 election. And it will open the door for presidents in the future to drag foreign governments into our election. We will leave it there. And of course, we'll be following this closely. Congressman Raskin, thank you. I was delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin was in Washington, D.C. Today, Christian Freeland said she's confident that Canada is going to get answers from Iran about the downing of flight PS752. But the deputy prime minister's confidence is undercut by Iran's failure to hand over the plane's flight recorders. The data and voice recordings on those black boxes are a key part of the multinational investigation into the crash. Kathy Fox is the chair of the Transportation Safety Board of Canada. The agency has had a team of investigators in Iran and has also been participating in the Ukrainian-led investigation in Kiev. We reached Kathy Fox in Gatineau, Quebec. Ms. Fox, we heard Christa Freeland today say she is confident, that's the word she used, that we will get all the answers we need about this flight. After more than two weeks since the crash, what is that confidence based on? I can't speak for the minister. What I can say is that our uh, investigators, who spent six days in Tehran and another two days in Kiev, described their interactions with the Iranian Accident Investigation Bureau as uh, cooperative and helpful. And they are getting access to more information than we would normally be entitled to under uh, international protocols. How unusual is it that you would not even have access at this point to the contents of those black boxes? Well, the international protocols require the state leading the investigation to download the recorders without undue delay. Typically, that can happen within a week or two. Uh, We're now past the two-week mark, and no final decision has been made. So we certainly 
are hoping and urging the Iranians to make a decision quickly so that we can go to an, wherever the recorders will be and, uh, and assist in the download and analysis. What reasons are they giving for this delay? Well, first of all, I think there's, uh, it's normal for the um, country that's leading the investigation to want to download those recorders in that country. But when that can't be done for whatever technical reason, they normally go to another state. So I can't speak to what's happening in, in Iran in terms of uh, what other factors may be at play here. But part of the issue is definitely a, a technology issue. The, the recorders were damaged, and Iran may not have the equipment necessary, and some of that equipment is not transportable. So they are assessing, uh, they have been the last couple of days been assessing the feasibility of doing it in Ukraine. I haven't heard the final outcome of that, and if that doesn't work, then uh, we'll see what other country may be able to do it. What are you hoping you can learn from that flight data that's on those voice recorders? So first of all, uh, the cockpit voice recorder, which records the conversations between the pilots as well as any other oral, audible sound, will at least tell us whether the crew had any advance inkling of what was about to happen. And then the flight data recorders will be able to tell us what the aircraft was doing, its speed, its altitude, its flight path before the missiles went off and then after. These uh, data recorders record thousands of parameters of uh, information and they do it on a second-by-second basis. So that will give us a sequence of events in terms of what was happening in and around the airplane. But that data then has to be corroborated with the physical evidence from the wreckage. And that will certainly tell a, a, a big part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. And the investigation certainly doesn't end when the recorders are downloaded and analyzed. But what we've heard is that there was no mayday. There was no urgent message sent from the cockpit. So does that indicate that there was no time, there was no response from the pilots before they were hit? If there were no communications uh, or if there were no calls from the pilots to air traffic control, and that is something that is also has to be validated, then it could indicate either that they didn't know or they didn't have time to call. But again, that information needs to be validated uh, by the investigation and by the cockpit voice recorders before we can confirm uh, if they knew what was about to happen. And the Iranians have said at some point that they believe that the plane had changed its course and that that may have been what triggered the accidental shooting down of the plane. Is there any indication at this point that they did change course, that they they were turning? Well, that, again, will be subject to review the the, uh, voice uh, recorders, but also the flight data recorders will be recording the aircraft's track, its heading, and uh, will be able to, uh, or should be able to indicate if they're not damaged, what path the aircraft was following uh, both before the missile strike and what may have happened after. Because remember, depending on how the missile exploded and struck the airplane, it it may have been rendered uncontrollable immediately or, or shortly thereafter. Can the black boxes show whether or not this really was an accident? No, uh, I think that in terms of whether the missiles were launched intentionally or accidentally, that requires a line of inquiry with uh, those most directly involved to find out, was there a breakdown in command and control, communication, coordination, were there equipment limitations, were operators feeling threatened in some way uh, by something? That line of inquiry needs to be pursued to validate whether it was an accidental shootdown or intentional. You're not ruling out that it may have been intentional? Uh, Investigators put everything on the table uh, when we start an investigation. Nothing is ruled out until it can be confirmed by the evidence.
does Iran know that you have not ruled out that it's, that might be intentional? I don't know what's been said. I don't know what they've heard, but uh, this is not the first time I'm saying this publicly. So, Another key piece of evidence is uh, the actual site of the crash, which uh, Iran uh, cleaned up pretty quickly. It was bulldozed. What did your investigators, what were they able to see, what were they able to learn from the actual site? I can't tell you what they learned uh, because a lot of the information that they're going to bring back with them we're not going to be able to release because one of the limitations of the international protocols is that we cannot share factual information unless it's already been shared by the lead investigation agency or unless we've been given permission to do so. But we do know that not long after the accident occurred, because the debris field was so large, and in, in such cases it can be difficult to protect, and even though the best practice is to pr- protect it, grid it off, document where all the pieces were found, that there was uh, an intent to transport the wreckage to a secure site so that it wouldn't be contaminated or lost. Uh, our investigators had the opportunity to visit both the accident site as well as to uh, review and examine the wreckage in a secure location to which it had been transported. How frustrated are you with this investigation? Um, I, I think it's early days. I think we're, we remain um, encouraged by the information that's been shared to date, by the cooperation and helpfulness of the Iranian investigative team, and uh, by the fact that we're given access to information that we would not normally have access to. The question is going to be, will that continue for the future? Will we be given the, the higher status that we've been advocating for? And I can't answer that right now. Well, then we will keep in touch and, uh, and talk to you another time, I hope. Ms. Fox, thank you. Thank you. Kathy Fox is the chair of the Transportation Safety Board of Canada. We reached her in Gatineau, Quebec. You'll find more on that story and more of our coverage of the shooting down of Flight PS752 on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. He didn't act like a legend, but that's part of what made him one. Jim Lehrer was a journalist for five decades, during which his steady, thoughtful presence made him a giant of television news. As we told you last night, Mr. Lehrer died yesterday in Washington. He was 85 years old. He started out working for newspapers in Dallas and wound up becoming a news anchor in Washington for PBS. He created and co-hosted the McNeil Lehrer Report with his colleague, the Canadian journalist Robert McNeil. Mr. Lehrer was the most prolific presidential debate moderator in television history. And because of his reputation for fairness and diligence, he was routinely given interviews with world leaders, including American presidents. Maybe most famously in 1998, when he questioned President Bill Clinton about accusations he had a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Kenneth Starr, the independent counsel, is investigating allegations that you suborn perjury by encouraging a 24-year-old woman, former White House intern, to lie under oath in a civil deposition about her having had an affair with you. Mr. President, is that true? That is not true. That is not true. I did not ask anyone to tell anything other than the truth. There is no improper relationship, and I intend to cooperate with this inquiry. Uh, But that is not true. No improper relationship 
define what you mean by that. Well, I think you know what it means. It means that, uh, that there is not a, uh, a sexual relationship, an improper sexual relationship, or any other uh, kind of improper relationship. You had no sexual relationship with this young woman? There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. The, we are doing our best to cooperate here, but mm -hmm. we don't know much yet. Uh, and uh, that's all I can say now. What I'm trying to do is to uh, contain my <coughs> natural impulses and get back to work. I think it's important that we cooperate. I will cooperate, but I want to focus on the work at hand. Just for the record, to make sure I understand what your answer means, so there's no ambiguity about it. There is no. Did, all right. You had no conversations with this young woman, Monica Lewinsky, about her testimony, or possible testimony, before uh, in giving uh, a, I did a not deposition. Urge, I did not urge anyone to say anything that was untrue. Jim Lehrer interviewing President Bill Clinton in 1998. Mr. Lehrer died yesterday at his home in Washington. He was 85. We reached his former colleague, co-host, and lifelong friend, Robert McNeil, in New York City. Robert McNeil, first of all, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend and your news partner. Well, thank you, thank you. I was very lucky because it's almost 50 years of a very close friendship and a business partnership and uh, being colleagues. And anyway, it was uh, on all those levels. So, yes, it's, it's very hard. Now, when you hear your friend go after President Bill Clinton, asking yeah. him about his sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky and whether he, 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 he encouraged her to lie, what, what does that say to you about how Jim Lair handled an interview? Well, it's a very good example of his uh, pertinacity. And without slamming somebody or being rude to them, the background to that is that interview with Clinton had been arranged long before, as they often are. And then he woke up that morning and read in the newspaper that there was this allegation about the affair with Monica Lewinsky. And he rang me and said, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I said, I don't know, but you uh, just have to ask him. Anyway, uh, he asked, and uh, Clinton lied to him about the affair while trying to tell the truth about the alleged you know, uh, perjury. But Somebody, almost immediately, somebody said in our staff, he lied to Jim Lehrer. You don't lie to Jim Lehrer. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, there was a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And, and he interviewed all kinds of people, Thatcher, Arafat, the King of Jordan. Uh, um, and he just always with the same dogged pursuit, but never rattled, always uh, sort of <laughs> polite, yeah. but never giving up. He was like a dog with a bone, wasn't well, he? <laughs> We, uh, we interviewed Margaret Thatcher together once when she was prime minister, and uh, he was sitting closer to her than I was. And at one point, when he'd repeatedly asked something, she said, and she slapped him on the knee and said, young man, you keep asking me that question and I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from him? You've been speaking about this over the past day or so, about what you, you took away from being his partner for all those years. What a straight shooter he was, uh, publicly and privately. And we talked about everything, the two of us. I mean, we had no secrets from each other. You know, a lot of people on television develop a kind of television persona. They, they kind of make themselves more into what they think television wants. Jim didn't do that at all. The Jim you got on television was Jim. He was more serious than he often was in, in private because he was a very funny guy. And uh, we shared a lot of the same humor. 
ironic humor and uh, and disgust at things the way things were going politically and so on. Somebody said years ago, it isn't hard to succeed on television. All you need to do is fake sincerity. <laughs> well, Jim didn't fake sincerity. People came to know both of you when you were covering the Senate Watergate hearings in right. 1973 and that marathon that would go on all day and all night as you tried to make sense of that. I mean, you must have got to know him pretty well right away and know that you wanted to work with this guy, right? Yeah, indeed. It's this case of instant friendship, remarkable to us both, and because it hadn't happened in the same way before. Jim had a lot of friends and made friends easily, but we had a, uh, a relationship that I said earlier was on all levels. We knew an awful lot about each other's finances, whether he should buy the house that they're still in, which involved a huge mortgage, all these things. And um, we just talked about anything, mostly, apart from the news of the day, mostly about the books we were writing or hoped to write. There were a number of rules that Jim Lehrer had that, uh, well, I'm going to read some of them. Do nothing or say nothing that you can't defend. The story is not about me, he said. Assume that the viewer is as caring and knowing as I am. Assume private lives are private until it's necessary to uh, explore them. Uh, No anonymous quotes and no attacks in quotes. And finally, I am not in the entertainment business. <laughs> Those are all rules should be just like just nailed to the door of every journalist organization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I applaud them all and did. What did you understand about his rules? Why, did he, why was he so strict in that? Jim had a, a very strong sense of what is right and wrong applied to anything. He was, he was a moralist. He had an acute sense of the moral equation in any situation, whether it was, a, you know, something about a staff quarrel or an issue about how we treat a certain story or whether we do a certain story, and in personal lives. He wrote fiction, as, as you do, but he, wrote, he was writing all the time. He wrote plays. Why did he feel that every day he needed to work on fiction? He was born wanting to do that, and uh, he thought the greatest joy in the world would be Ernest Hemingway or another published author, and he succeeded in doing it. He was full of ideas, far more than I was. He wrote 22 novels. A lot of them could have been made into movies because the central idea was so strong, but they weren't. Only his first novel, Viva Max, was made into a movie with Peter Ustinov. Very funny novel imagining a bored Mexican general retaking the Alamo and all hell breaking loose (laughs) after that. Very funny. And you still see the movie occasionally on late night TV. You know, I was thinking about him, just reflecting on the the news cycles we now have it and just how overheated news coverage seems to be. What could Jim Lehrer bring to the news cycle as we now have it? How would he be covering the story today? Well, I think, and we talked about this, in fact, quite recently, we said, God, what if we were doing it now? What would it be like? His view of it was that he would have done it the way he did it before, um, and he would have used the same demeanor. One of the ways in which public television can be different from all the rant on cable television is that it can just be reasonably civil and, uh, and quiet and moderated, literally moderated. Is there any particular memory of your friend, of Jim Lehrer, that, uh, that, that you treasure right now? Well... He was the best man at my wedding years ago. He, uh, he, he, he made the toast to the bride, and he said, uh, 
it must be love because who else would marry a 54-year-old man with braces? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we met, but we didn't meet. On the night of the Kennedy assassination in 1963, we were both in the police station in Dallas as they paraded Oswald back and forth. But we never met until 10 years later, but there are pictures of both of us in the police station that night. He was later appointed by the uh, Dallas Times-Herald to stay on the Kennedy assassination story for a whole year. So he became the one closest to an expert outside the official people. He believed the Warren Commission finding that Oswald did it alone. And because he believed that, I believed it too, because he'd gone into it so thoroughly. He said, I can't imagine that if somebody else was involved in it, they wouldn't have been able to resist on their deathbed saying they had something to do with it because it was such a huge event, momentous event. Robert, I appreciate that you would share your memories of Dr. Jim Lehrer with us. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be back on the CBC where I started. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Robert McNeil is the Canadian co-creator of PBS's McNeil Lehrer Report and a lifelong friend of Jim Lehrer. We reached Mr. McNeil in New York City. Jim Lehrer died yesterday at his home in Washington. He was 85 years old. Cassidy Armstrong had been feeling fatigue and pain in her ribs for years. It didn't feel good, and things didn't look good. Doctors suspected she had a rare cancer and thought she had a tumor growing on her liver. They recommended surgery, but warned her that even after that procedure, she might only have a few years to live. But when she had the mass removed, the situation looked much better, but more complicated. She didn't have cancer at all. But the doctors had discovered that something rare and shocking had been growing inside her. We reached Cassidy Armstrong in Edmonton. Cassidy, how are you feeling these days? I've been better. Um, It's slow. It's been a really slow process for healing. But you're feeling better? Um, A little bit every day, yeah. Um, Just when did you first realize that there was something going wrong? Um, The first time that I had physical symptoms would have been a few years ago. Um, I had uh, kind of a dull ache in my right ribs. Mm-hmm. And you went to the doctor? I did, yeah. I went to the doctor and um, we thought that maybe it was, um, had a rib had popped out or something. And so I went and got some x-rays done. But what I have uh, wouldn't show up in that type of imaging. Um, so they didn't find anything. Then, so what did they do? What did doctors do to try and find out what it was that was ca- causing that pain? Well, I wasn't really sure. They didn't really have any other theories at the time of what else it could have been. And for me, like, the pain wasn't really super bad, and it would kind of come and go, and, like, it would disappear for months at a time. And so I just kind of left it. And at what point did you think that you had to find out a bit more? Um, well, it was a few years later, the, the pain was more constant and lasting longer. Um, and then I had some digestive issues as well. And I had a new pain that showed up, which was like a, an aching pain in my right shoulder that wasn't responding to massage therapy or anything like that. So that's when I decided to 
get some more help and do some more investigations. When they did the tests, what did they say that you had? Um, they said that they suspected that I had a type of uh, liver cancer. Uh, I'm probably not saying it right, but it's a fibrolamellar carcinoma, so quite rare. And what what did they say? What what prognosis did they give you at that point? Um, they said that I would have had well, that prognosis for it's very poor. So it's the type of cancer they have to cut. The only way is to cut it out, um, and then they can try chemotherapy afterwards, but that's not usually effective. And I would have had maybe another two to five years. Even with surgery, that they said it would only give you a few more years to live. Yeah. And then, so you had the surgery last November. What did they find? Um, Well, they discovered, uh, I think it was about a day or two after surgery, um, that it wasn't, in fact, cancer, that it was a a type of uh, parasite that you get from uh, dogs or uh, coyotes. It's like a tapeworm. Like a tapeworm, yeah, but on a microscopic level. They're very, very, it's very tiny. Did they tell you where it was or what it looked like or anything about it? They took 65% of my liver, uh, my entire gallbladder. They cut a couple of nodules off of my lungs and um, scraped some of the cysts off of my diaphragm. Was that was all damage that the that the parasite had done? Yeah, it, it had uh, started to grow and metastasize to other areas in my body. Apparently, it looks a lot like cancer. So, and it can spread a lot like cancer to other organs and other things in your body. What was it like when they came to tell you after you, after you recovered from the surgery, what, what, when they told you that, that what you had and that it wasn't cancer? What did they say to you? Well, it was uh, a team of people came in, um, disease doctors that were at the hospital. Basically, they, they, we don't think you have cancer. We think you have this uh, rare form of parasite called uh, the Conococcus multiloculares. Um, and so I remember asking them, I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> is that a good thing? And they said, it's a much better thing than what they thought that I had. Did they have any theories as to how you got this parasite? Um, yeah, <laughs> I've been racking my brain too. They're saying that, you know, people can get it from contact with the eggs, usually spread through the feces of coyotes and dogs. So I haven't owned a dog since I was a little girl. So as to how I got it, I don't know. I was a mechanic for many years, so it's possible that maybe from working on um, farm equipment, I could have gotten it that way. I mean, it's it's very rare, but they are finding more cases specifically here in Alberta. So, And you haven't had any contact with coyotes? Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> you'd, you'd remember that if you had. Yeah, I think, I think so. <laughs> but now, what, what have they said to you about this? the odd thing that so many cases of, of this parasite or parasites being found and being misdiagnosed, that they're being found in Alberta? Why do you think that's the case? Um, I mean, they've known about this in Europe for quite a long time, but they theorized that they somebody brought over some hunting foxes or some do- dogs from Europe, and that's how it spread. Why specifically Alberta? I'm not sure. They are finding really high rates of it among the coyote population here in Alberta. I think possibly rodents can carry it too, but don't quote me on that because I'm not the expert. But <laughs> but they've had 15 proven cases in Alberta just in the past six years. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's growing, it's spreading. And, I mean, those are just the cases that they've confirmed and that they know about, right? So 
it can stay dormant in your body for, like they suspect I've had it for about 10 years. Good heavens. Cassie, I'm glad you're feeling better, and I hope you get a full recovery. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye. Cassidy Armstrong recently discovered she had a mass growing inside her, an infection caused by the eggs of a tapeworm. We reached her in Edmonton. Just a few years ago, Hansel, Gretel, Nibbles, Munchkin, and Dallas were on the verge of being euthanized. They were among 31 pit bulls seized by Chatham-Kent police from a dogfighting operation near Windsor, Ontario, back in 2015. In the years that followed, court battles raged over whether a majority of those dogs should be put down for being too aggressive. In the end, a lot of them were spared and sent to a rescue in Florida. Those five I just named ended up with Carol Skaziak near Philadelphia. Ms. Skaziak is the founder of the Throwaway Dogs Project, which trains working dogs. Yesterday, the project donated nibbles to the Craven County Sheriff's Department in New Bern, North Carolina. And earlier this week, Hansel had his first day of work as an arson-detecting canine in New Jersey. This morning, Carol Skaziak spoke with the CBC's Tony Doucette about why that is such an important milestone. We are just so overjoyed uh, that Hansel is uh, the first arson-detection canine pit bull, I do believe, in the United States. He's a wonderful, friendly, loving dog that just wants to please his handler. How unusual is it for a pit to be working for any police agency in any role? It's starting to become more known, uh, at least in the United States. There definitely are canine uh, police dogs that are pit bulls now in the United States. And I'm so excited and happy to see this because we need chiefs from police departments, from fire departments, to see this as an example and say, you know what, we want to make a statement also. We want to save a dog that can help the community. Not every dog can be a police dog. They have to have certain qualities and traits, and there are a lot of pit bulls that have these these traits and these qualities. They're very easy to train. They are very loyal, and they make a perfect law enforcement partner. It it, it definitely is a no-brainer. If, as you say, this is a no-brainer, why didn't this happen years ago? I'm not sure, Tony, and that that is part of my mission now, um, to keep producing uh, the bully breed dogs uh, out in law enforcement and to prove that this absolutely can be done. But I also want the other people, the other rescues that are out there to see this and to try to do what I am doing also. There is so many of them that are misunderstood that need a second chance to be repurposed. What do you think it means to the animals to have a new calling? I have seen these animals just want companionship, just want affection, and they just want love. There is no aggression. There is no anger. These dogs just want to be loved. No matter what they have been through, it's like it didn't matter. They don't care. It's unconditional. And, and that just makes my heart smile because we really don't know what they have been through. We don't know. Carol Skaziak is the founder and CEO of the Throwaway Dogs Project near Philadelphia. She spoke with Tony Doucette earlier today on CBC Radio's Windsor Morning.
ancient Egyptian priest Nesyamun is finally getting his dying wish for his voice to live on, 3,000 years after he fell silent. Nesyamun died in 1069 BC, but now, thanks to a 3D-printed replica of his vocal cords, for the first time the world can hear a snippet of what the Egyptian priest might have sounded like when he addressed his congregation on spiritual matters. Here we go. It's our sound of the day. Nesimun probably said other things also, like words, but from a scientific standpoint, that eh, was impressive. British scientists were able to reproduce that single syllable using the mummy's vocal tract, the mouth, throat, and nasal cavity that give us all our unique voices. The research team determined that the synthesized sound falls between the vowels in bad and bed. And that sound might be explained by the fact that Nesyamun died with his tongue sticking out, possibly because of an allergic reaction to an insect bite. So Nesyamun may have been a great orator, but you'll have to use your imagination, because three millennia later, he's kind of... Exactly. Is it just me or has it been another long week? So together, let's clear our heads by banging our heads to this instant classic cover of a classic rock classic. This really gets the blood flowing, right? Yeah, that's Thunderstruck by ACDC performed by a one-man band. A one small man band. A one, it's a one baby band. And the baby's name is Ryan McMillan. His father, Matt McMillan, went to great lengths, weirdly great lengths, to turn his tiny son's gurgling, babbling, sneezing, and chortling into Thunderstruck. We're impressed, and we're a little worried about him, so we called up Matt McMillan in Delran, New Jersey. Matt, first of all, what compelled you to think that you could make music with only the sounds that your baby makes? <laughs> Um, so when my daughter was born about three years ago, she would kind of sing songs to herself. And as I was listening to it, that's kind of where I got the idea to actually record her and take little clips of her sounds and compose them into a song. So then about a year ago when my, when my son Ryan was born, I, from the get-go, had the idea to make a song out of it. So basically every sound that he made, I would whip out my phone, start recording, uh, so that I would have all the sounds to compose into a song. Did you decide at the, the beginning that you were going to do Thunderstruck, or did it just did, did that inspiration come as you listened to your your little boy play his make his sounds? Yeah, the inspiration came later. I had a couple of songs that I had in mind, um, but based on the notes that he basically gave me and the fact that his the sounds he made were so short, they really lent itself. Um, to Thunderstruck because that, that short staccato intro uh, that Thunderstruck has. <laughs> okay, so the notes that your son gave you, where? how did he give you the notes? <laughs> 
So basically, I after I sifted through a couple hours of footage, um, I cut down basically each clip of where he was either making a noise like sneezing or burping or hitting something or making kind of like a musical tone. Um, so after I weeded those out, I had 83 notes that basically had a tone in them, and then I sorted them by ascending pitch, just kind of ordering them up. Uh, and then what I did was basically figure out the note of each clip by playing the note and then playing the keys on a piano to try to match. Okay, so how many how many keys did you have on your keyboard, your baby Ryan keyboard? Yeah, so uh, he, out of the 83 notes, there were a lot of repeats, so he basically provided me with 21 individual keyboard notes. <laughs> okay, and so at the same time, he gave you some percussion. How did he give you that? Yeah, so um, anytime he was sneezing or banging on something or shaking a rattle, uh, I was recording it. So for Thunderstruck, I used a sneeze as the cymbals. Um, he was hitting the sofa. I used that as a bass drum because it's got a nice kick to it. And then there was one where he was banging on the floor, and I used that for the snare drum. <laughs> okay, how much time did you spend putting all this together? Yeah, uh, it was a long one. Um, I spent probably about 80 hours total uh, on this over the course of about three months. Wow. And uh, and right away, again, again, figuring out that you had what you had needed for Thunderstruck. Is there anything missing in your composition? No. That was the nice part about Thunderstruck. It actually fell in line with all the notes I had. I didn't need to, like, tweak the pitch of any of his notes. So basically everything he provided me with... Uh, I had available for Thunderstruck. Well, maybe there was some inspiration to this. Maybe Ryan knew what he was doing all this past year. <laughs> maybe, maybe. What's really fun about it is that you, did, you assign the notes and we can see how you're playing it, but on the video that you've made as well, you get to see how Ryan changes. It's really fun. Right. That he's like, over one year, you realize how much a baby actually changes. Absolutely. And so what are you going to do with that? Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do from here. The hard part was basically determining all the notes, and now that I have those notes, uh, there's a couple more songs I have in mind. <laughs> what songs? I'm currently in the process of seeing if I have all the notes to put together at least part of Bohemian Rhapsody or something <laughs> with a lot of good harmonies and melodies. You can get harmony with, with Ryan's sounds? Yeah, so he gave me all of one octave and then a couple notes of two other <laughs> octaves, so I do have enough to do some harmonies in there. What does the rest of your family think of this? <laughs> it's funny. We, ha we were fortunate to have good sleepers, so we actually put them to bed around 7.30, so we have a couple hours, me and my wife, to ourselves. Um, so I would edit video kind of between 7.30 and 9.00. And there were multiple times where she would come upstairs thinking one of the kids were crying, but it's actually just the baby sounds coming uh, from the computer. Did, did she like, question your, your sanity at any point? She, yeah. So she, um, as I'm figuring out these notes, I'm writing them all down on post-it notes, basically so I can assign each clip with the note that it is. Um, and my wife comes and picks one, picks one of them up and says, what, what is this? And I'm trying to explain to her that, like, I'm matching our son's baby noises to notes, and she she was trying to wrap her mind around it, but she thinks I'm kind of crazy. <laughs> well, but now you have a full complement of all his every single gurgle and and uh, and sigh and cry and uh, and, no, and first word. So you, you know, yep. at least that is Absolutely. is on the. And what do you think that Ryan will think when he's older and you show this to? Him? I presume you're oh. going to. <laughs> I hope he likes it. Um, he's definitely getting a lot of attention now, whether he whether he likes it or not. I'm sure he doesn't really know about it, but. Um, yeah, I'm hoping he enjoys it once he's old enough to actually realize what it is. When he finds out that his sneeze was actually a symbol, that should do something for him. <laughs> yeah. Matt, it's great to talk to you. Thank you.
Thanks for having me. Bye. Matt McMillan spent a year compiling videos of his baby, Ryan, and then turning those videos into a video called Baby Ryan Sings Thunderstruck. We reached Mr. McMillan in Delran, New Jersey. And if you want to see that video, and you do, head to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. If a headline is posed as a question, is the answer ever yes? The answer is no. That is now known as Betteridge's Law of Headlines because of an article by a British tech reporter named Ian Betteridge. In 2009, writing about somebody's dubious reporting, he said, This story is a great demonstration of my maxim that any headline which ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. He added, The reason why journalists use that style of headline is that they know the story is probably BS and don't actually have the sources and facts to back it up, but still want to run it. With that in mind, consider these headlines from the last couple of days. Was Bigfoot caught on Washington Highway camera? Is that Sasquatch on Sherman Pass? And where is Sasquatch? In the snowy mountains of Washington, state officials say. The gist is that the Washington State Department of Transportation tweeted photos from its webcam near Sherman Pass, about 40 kilometers south of the B.C. border. In one photo, there's something big and dark next to a tree. And in another, that big, dark thing is revealed to be a big, dark humanoid figure striding away from the road. Now, by my count, at least 16 different news outlets had question mark headlines about this story, all variations on Even though this isn't Bigfoot, is this Bigfoot? Well, no. No, it isn't. We don't know who it is, but it is not Bigfoot. But when you want to run a story you know is hogwash, you have to watch your language. Or Sasquatch it. They had an agreement for 34 years, but now Ryerson University in Toronto is cutting ties with the Ryerson Students' Union, saying it's lost confidence in the school's student government. The split comes after the union faced allegations of misspending last January. An investigation by Ryerson student newspaper, The Eye Opener, revealed that members of the union may have racked up roughly $250,000 in credit card charges in under a year, The alleged spending included purchases at Ontario liquor stores, nightclubs, and casinos. After the allegations were made public, former student union president Ram Ganesh was impeached. A forensic audit was completed, and just days ago, the students' union asked Toronto police to investigate the alleged financial mismanagement. Back when that story broke, Carol spoke with Sharina Harris, who was part of the team that first reported on the scandal. From our archives, here's part of their conversation. Sharina, has the student union at Ryerson provided any explanation as of yet for how so much money could have been spent on, well, what appears to be spent on booze, nightclubs, and casinos, among other things? No, they haven't. The eye-opener has given the student union multiple opportunities to comment, and as well at the board of directors meeting last week, several representatives asked the president directly 
to explain some of the um, expenses. And he repeatedly said that he would be able to provide a full explanation and context once the um, receipts were reconciled on February 1st, but there were no explanations given at the meeting. How did you learn about this? How did you learn that the student union president might be spending this kind of money? So we had received some tips from people as early as this fall that we should be looking into the credit card statements and we should be looking into some of their finances. But at that time, we weren't able to verify the information just because it was screenshots of their online bank account. We didn't want to publish something based on information we couldn't confirm. So recently, we started looking into it more because the president actually had told us directly that the student union had two credit cards, um, that he had a credit card and the vice president operations had a credit card. When we looked into this further, we learned that this was breaking financial bylaws and policies of the RSU because the executives aren't supposed to have their own credit card. We've heard from a student director that the total amount of purchases is $250,000, but we've only seen a small sliver of the statements. And RSU, when you refer to the Ryerson Student Union. Now, so tell us about some of the expenses. What have you seen as far as what raised your eyebrows the most? Over $2,000 spent at EFS Toronto, which is a nightclub. There was over $2,500 spent at a Cineplex rec room, over $1,300 at Nick's Sport Shop. And there were also just a lot of smaller ones that we weren't really sure how they could have been used for events benefiting students. There was money spent at hotels, Airbnbs, $300 at a Haze Lounge, which is like a, a shisha lounge. That was Ryerson student journalist Sharina Harris speaking with Carol last January. Today, Ryerson University announced it was cutting ties with the Ryerson Students' Union. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.